Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Early Music Monday. For this first episode, I really want to go through my story and how I came to be a conductor and how I came to start Sound of Ages. My story is kind of a unique one in in a lot of ways, and I hope that it helps you think about your story and think about why you do what you do. Let's start at the beginning. I was born. Just kidding. I'm not going to go that far. But I will go back to my childhood. I grew up in Las Vegas, technically Henderson, Nevada, and I was a typical 90s kid, rode my bike everywhere, played outside every day. I was playing two sports at once year-round. I played baseball year-round, basketball in the winter, soccer in the spring-summer, flag football in the late summer, and baseball again all through that. So I I have one younger brother, and he was in sports too. My dad was our coach, so we lived at the ballpark. My mom played sports in college. My dad played sports in college. It's just kind of what we do. Then my dad got a new job in Kansas, and the Kansas jokes never ended for my junior high friends. They thought it was hilarious. <laughs> Are you going to buy a dog and name it Toto? And I did do that. No, I did not do that. But we did move to Kansas as I was going into the eighth grade. And at first, it was I thought it was going to be kind of hard, but... The minute we got there, I was just like ready for a new thing. And all it all of my friends in Vegas had moved away before, so I didn't have any like really close friends really close by anymore. So as an elementary school kid, that's like the end of the world because you can't ride your bike to their house. So I was like, okay, let's do this. So we moved to Kansas, a town called Olathe. And As I went to register for classes at my new school, my mother looked at the registration form and looked at me and said, Cam, you have to do choir once. You only have to do it one time, but if you do it one year and you don't like it, then you can quit. And I was pretty easygoing, and I couldn't think of anything else I was interested in. So I was like, okay, She had forced me into piano lessons as a kid, and I was still in piano lessons, but it it was just kind of a chore, you know. And so I was like, okay, here's another music thing. Sure, why not? And my junior high choir teacher, Marquita Pearson, still to this day I owe so much because she did one thing that I think is the most important job as a junior high teacher is she taught me to love singing in choir. And as I taught junior high later in my life, just for four years, just a couple years ago, that was something that I really tried to do, just get them to love it. And they'll, they'll learn the techniques and the technical things along the way. But if you can get them to love it, they'll stay in it. And uh, I did. I did. And she helped me to be successful. She gave me some tools to help me be successful. And I saw that there were cute girls in there. And they liked 
the good singers. So it was kind of a win, win, win. And I was at a new school, so I really wanted to be cool. And so choir obviously is the answer. Um, and I did sports as well. I kept doing sports. I was on the school basketball team and the school football team, but I did choir as well. And it was a blast. I loved it. I did barbershop. I did honor choir. I did all the things because, again, Miss Pearson believed in me and helped me believe in myself and gave me confidence and helped me succeed. So at about that time, as I was in ninth grade, my f- best friends and I, we watched this really cool, sophisticated film about music where this guy wants to start this music group and he's struggling to find members. So he poses as a substitute teacher to and uses them to be his music group. Um, the film's called The School of Rock, I believe. And it was just like, we must start a band as we watched. It was just like, not even a question. We're like, hey, what instrument are you going to play? What instrument are you going to play? I want to play the drums. So I picked the drums. Aaron picked the guitar. Josh picked the bass. And we just did it. And then we were like, wait, we don't know how to play these. So <laughs> we are like... So they took lessons, I took lessons, we kind of figured it out, and we just started writing songs. And that's what we do, like, every day, down in my basement, playing songs, writing songs. And that's what really got me one step further in, like, if if we talk about, like, being fully in the music career, it was the next step for me, is starting that band. Because then as I got to high school, I auditioned for choir. I was in the men's chorus my first year as a sophomore. We had 7 through 9, 10 through 12. As a sophomore, I was in the men's chorus. And Dr. Dunn, Dr. Dwayne Dunn was my conductor. And uh, Dwayne Dunn is a genius and was so overqualified to be a high school choir teacher. And but he loved teaching high school and I respected that a lot. And he taught me how to be a musician and how to sight read those two things. Primarily I learned and I got really good at both. I understood how to make a phrase. I understood how to sight read and how to hear audiate before. And we did so many skill building exercises that really helped me build those skills. So on top of that, I took music theory class in high school because I was just obsessed with learning how to write songs better. So between that and my sight reading skills, I really got kind of a college level musicianship theory and ear training course kind of all together there between the choir and the the music theory class that was taught by the band teacher. And about that same time, my junior year, I tried out for the basketball team. I had worked out with the varsity coach every day over the summer with like two other kids from the sophomore team. And we were like, he was telling us like, you are shoe-ins for 
being starters on the JV team. Uh, tryouts came. I almost said auditions because I'm talking about music and sports. Uh, tryouts came. And uh, I didn't even make the first cut. And I was devastated. And I was like, well, crap. What am I supposed to do? Basketball was like the main sport that I loved. And I had, I mean, so much so that I, I was at basketball practice when I auditioned for the Madrigal Choir, the advanced choir at the high school. I ran down the hallway, took a couple of deep breaths, sang the tenor part of the national anthem as my audition, and then ran back to basketball practice in my practice jersey and uh, somehow got into the choir. But basketball was equal parts. I was Zac Efron in High School Musical. I was him. But instead of the musical, it was choir. So I was devastated. But I was so social that I didn't realize that part of my devastation was, well, what am I going to do after school? Like, what the heck? I'm going to come home and be bored all day. And I wasn't going to do that. So my friends convinced me, convinced me to try out for the musical. So I did. I went to the choir teacher and auditioned. It was past the audition date, but they hadn't made any decisions yet. So I auditioned and they gave me the part of Big Julie in Guys and Dolls. And it was amazing. And I got to wear a fat suit and a fake mustache and like a big old fancy zoot suit. And uh, it was legit. And I felt really cool. And it was so fun. I loved basketball practice, but I was also kind of (laughs) lazy. So it was way more fun because I didn't have to like work out. (laughs) I could just hang out with friends and work hard, but not physically because, again, I was kind of lazy. But I loved it. And that was it. That was the turning point of when uh, music was officially in the front seat for me. So as I got to college, as I was, or as I got to applying for college, I realized, well, until I get back from my two-year church mission, it doesn't matter what I study this first year because I can just change it. So I'll just study music to be a choir teacher. That's the only thing I could think of to do. So I signed up for music courses, and by some miracle of divine intervention, I made it into the advanced choir at BYU-Idaho. There was three freshmen in the choir of 50, Uh, I don't understand. I was not good enough at singing to be in that group. I know it for sure. But again, Randall Kempton had the Jedi mind trick put upon him, and he said, yeah, sure, you could be in this group. But I I was good at theory, and I I had a really good ear, and that's why I was in. But voice-wise, I had developed a lot of bad habits. I must have been tuned out when Dr. Dunn in high school was talking about voice technique because I was thinking about rock band technique and singing with chest voice, just yelling. So anyway, I go back for my two-year mission, kept going with music, but I struggled in the voice department and I really started thinking about theory and composing and was in the Student Composer Society and... My last semester, April 
2000, oh, geez, April 2013. Is that real? Anyway, my last semester, I failed my voice lesson, my pre-recital hearing. They said, quote, we just feel that when you're approaching the high notes, we're not really sure what's going to happen. And in my head, I was like, yeah, me neither. <laughs> like, I don't know what's going to happen either. Can't figure it out. And uh, so so I had to stay an extra semester, and I ended up conducting my friend's composition senior recital, the full hour of, you know, he wrote a full mass and a full orchestral overture to an opera, and I, I conducted the whole thing, and because I was conducting everywhere. I asked everyone, hey, can I conduct this for you? Can I conduct this for you? I just asked everyone in the composer society and the composing major, hey, I'll conduct that for you. And so I got to be known as the conductor. And that semester, I I had my application all filled out for film school to go to USC for film composition. But I also was like, I love the classroom and I love conducting. So... I decided to apply to BYU in choral conducting. And they only accept two students a year. But the year I applied, they accepted five. So again, some some divine Jedi mind tricks going on. Um, super fortunate. I can't even believe it to this day that I got into BYU's program with the skills that I had. Because again, I was much more of a orchestral thinking musician and a composer rather than a singer or a core. And I didn't know any choral rep at all. I didn't know, I didn't know anybody who wasn't Eric Whitaker, like pretty much like I knew Brahms and Mozart and Whitaker. And that's like it other than some orchestral composers like Mussorgsky and Ravel and Mahler. And, you know, so Um, I still didn't understand singing that fall. I got married and I thought it was great at first. I'll get to a little bit more of that in a second. Then as I got to BYU, my musicianship skills continued to grow. I studied with the great Dr. Staley and Rosalind Hall and Dr. Staley is a master of score interpretation. And I learned so much from him about, how to take a score and dissect it and how to understand or how to make a phrase and, and how to bring out certain elements. And it changed the way I thought about choir music. And I grew to really love choir music for the, like real choir music for the first time. Um, and so that was really cool. And then my second year, Dr. Andy Crane came to BYU and he taught me about the voice and I learned how to sing, really sing. And that's when I really fell in love with singing and with choir. And I was in BYU Singers and I was a choral musician by the end of that second year. Um, But then life happened and my now ex-wife came to me and she's like, you know what? I don't really love you anymore. And I don't think we should be married anymore. And things had been rocky for a while. And she had said multiple times how much she didn't really understand my career. And she didn't 
really want to understand it and I was not emotionally mature enough to 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 realize that there were other things and so I kind of I felt like if I loved music less that I would save my marriage and so I I would purposefully like try to not love it and repress that love for music um to try to save it and you know we were both young and immature and didn't get it and eventually she just kind of said peace out and she walked away and after that I felt free again to love music again and I got into ice hockey right after that too and that love of sports that I had and that love of music helped me find myself again and I found who I was and I was someone who loved music and loved choral music now more than any other type and loved sports, especially ice hockey. Those two things helped me find myself again. And then we went on a study abroad to London with the choral department at BYU. And that was it. I became a full-fledged choir nerd. And I was sitting in one of my graduate classes called Music in the Renaissance. And we were studying a piece by Dufay called Nupe Rosarum Flores was composed for the dedication of Il Duomo in, in Florence. And I had never heard of Dufay. I, I did not know medieval music at all. And I remember sitting there, and I was looking at the music, and we were listening to it in class, and it was almost like an out-of-body experience. I remember so vividly looking at the, looking at the page of this music and thinking, this is glorious. Why does no one perform this on a regular basis? I have to start a group, and we're going to do early rep a lot. And from that point on, that's when Sound of Ages was born. From that point on, I, I viewed historical rep as, as the foundation and the building block for everything. All of my music history courses made sense. All of my choir conducting methods classes made sense. All of the programs I had sat through made sense. Everything made sense now because I understood the foundation. I understood where it came from and it changed everything to where now historical rep is where I look first for the pieces that I want to do and contemporary is where I look second. I have there's there's a balance to be had for sure in any program, but I think that my understanding of historical and early rep unleashed and unlocked my understanding of the entire course of western musical history, especially in the choral ensemble. So that's when it all began. So that's my story. And Sound of Ages exists now as a group that focuses on historical rep and trying to illustrate to the audience how relevant it is to help bring the audience to the music by illustrating through extra musical means, through 
a full concert experience instead of just, here, let's give the music to you and hope you get it. That is what changes the audience's understanding of historical rep too. Just like me in my class. They don't have to sit through a whole class to understand the significance of historical music. And so I hope through the rest of these podcasts that what we can do is we can have conversations. I'll have conversations with, again, like I said, other conductors, with educators, with business people or with like average audience members, with professional singers, with conductors of community choirs, with composers to get their perspective and give us ideas how we can make historical music relevant to our singers and to our audience members. And so I hope that as you understand my story now and where I came from, that you'll understand how to apply your story to your ensemble and to historical music. So that being said, let's move on to the next segment of the podcast, which is our composer profile, where we talk about Giovanni Perluigi da Palestrina. All right, talking about Palestrina. Palestrina is considered by many to be kind of the quintessential, the peak of the high renaissance. In a lot of ways, they're right. The, the style that he perfected as a composer shifted music style going forward and helped create music as we know it today in, in Western classical music. While he wasn't entirely accurately the savior of polyphony, as some may call him, he was very crucial to that saving of polyphony and, again, to the Western classical tradition. So the Reformation's happening. It's the early 16th century. Leaders of the Catholic Church are seeing people breaking off, clergymen leading their congregations away from the church, starting their own churches, starting their own groups, and you don't know what to do. So you have this giant council. Part of that council is the music that's happening in church services. Now, until this point, music in the church was not so different than music out of the church in, in some ways. So the polyphony was too thick and too complex. The congregation couldn't understand what was going on. Composers were setting texts and different texts on top of each other called kaleidoscope text. So the audience or the congregation couldn't even understand the, the words, which was the whole point of those religious pieces of music in the first place was primarily for the congregation. It was turning into something different. And the there were tons of composers putting folk tunes, pop tunes, profane tunes, whatever you call them, in their religious music. So that was a problem too. 
So, and there were some others, but those are really the main things that, uh, you know, were on the religious leaders' minds as they started to talk about music. Now, Palestrina was in the Sistine Chapel choir at the time, uh, but he was married. And the Pope said, "Yeah, that's okay. It's not technically allowed, but go ahead. But then, as a new pope came to power, he was much more by the book and part of this counter-reformation and said, nope, we're doing it by the book, you can't. So Palestrina was then asked to seek different employment. So, and while that was true, he also had already built himself a reputation amongst the clergymen as a great composer and musician. So he was really well-connected to people in those councils. So they said you have to simplify the polyphony, you have to make the text understandable, and you can't use, like, folk tunes anymore. So Palestrina became famous for his very conservative style of counterpoint, the way the voices interlaid together, and his polyphony became the example and really the treatise for composers to study all the way to today. I studied Palestrina's contrapuntal compositional style in my 16th century counterpoint class. It was strictly based on Palestrina's writing style, not just, you know, Renaissance composers of the 16th century. So he is a big deal. And again, he may not be the savior of polyphony as he's kind of become known, but he was crucial to that. So there's the reason why Palestrina is so timeless is because of the rules that he held himself to, the standards. Very strict rules. There's tons of them. I'm not going to list them here. But the, the manner in which each voice moves in relation to itself melodically and harmonically is a musical, musically perfect Sudoku puzzle. So there's pieces by Palestrina that can be done by advanced choirs, intermediate choirs, and beginning emerging choirs. All of those skill-level choirs can access Palestrina. Okay, so we'll start with a piece by Palestrina that can really be accessed by even the most beginning-level choir. Um, this piece is called Illumina. Oculos Meos, and it's for three parts. You can have any combination of voices because the range of the melody is relatively small, so it doesn't venture past what is technically achievable by a beginning-level group. And it's a pretty strict three-part canon, actually. So it's a really great way to start teaching polyphony using actual Renaissance music. So it it's pretty short. It's like a page, page and a half or something like that. And it has really easy Latin. There's not a lot of it. So you can teach it all together and then separate into three parts and... It's, it would work really great for a children's chorus on up. That, again, is called Illumina Oculos Meos.
You can find that score on CPDL. Okay, now on to the intermediate level. Misa Brevis in F. So Palestrina's Misa Brevis is really straightforward, and it's for four-part SATB, and it doesn't divide or have any out-of-control ranges. It's really nice. It just sits really nice for the singers. So what I did when I was teaching at Spanish Fork Junior High is I split my advanced chamber singers, 8th and ninth graders, into quartets, quintets, sextets, and I gave them, they each had Chromebooks that we could use at the school, so I I put website on the board, CPDL, and I just wrote like a list of Renaissance composers just off the top of my head that I could think of and said, okay, go search and find a piece for your group. And then they would bring it to me, I would approve it, and then I would create rehearsal tracks for them, and then they'd rehearse on their own, and I'd kind of just bounce around the different groups during rehearsal and kind of help help them bring it together, say, think about this, who has the most interesting part right now, and help them kind of do those things. And one of those groups, I gave Misa Brevis in F, they were having a hard time finding one, so I suggested that. And the first movement, Kyrie, is a decent length, two-ish minutes, two or three minutes, and it is super accessible, and they loved it. They totally killed it, too, like in the good way. So it was really cool to see them learn to love it and to be really successful with it. Um, and Sound of Ages also performed that at uh, the ACDA Utah conference. So you really can make it work for any level choir uh, and help them be really successful. All right, the third piece that we'll talk about is Nigra Sum. This is for a little bit more of an advanced choir. The rhythms are a little bit more complex. The expressive moments need a little bit more articulation and, and care and kind of subtlety to really make it shape the way the music was intended to be shaped. And it's one of his songs of Solomon. So now the interesting thing is, is when, like we've talked about before, just a little bit ago, most people think of Palestrina, they think really conservative harmonies, really straightforward voice leading, not very many dissonances. But he wrote this set of pieces to the Songs of Solomon, and they're much more expressive. They sound much more like something that Victoria would have written with lots more dissonance and then resolution and a little bit more complex rhythmically and a lot more diverse textually, uh, you know. So that is something that an adva- a more advanced choir, it's for four parts, SATB, but that's something that a more advanced choir like an advanced high school group, could really bring those things off the page and make it really musical and really expressive. So, there you have it, our composer profile. You have Palestrina, Illumina Oculos Meos for beginning group, Misa Brevis in F for intermediate group, and Nigrasum for a more advanced group. 
Okay, everyone, that wraps up episode one of Early Music Monday. Thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully you're motivated and inspired to listen to some Palestrina. Hopefully my story gave you some thoughts and helped you reflect on why you love choral music. Join us next week. We're going to talk about conductor priorities, how to bring out your musical priorities in a group, and we're going to do an interview with Kenny Weiser, conductor of choirs at Provo High School, and we're going to talk about John Dunstable. Join us next week on Early Music Monday. <laughs>